Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Let's begin tonight by recognizing that the state of our union is strong because our people are strong. We have created 2.4 million new jobs. Unemployment claims have hit a 45-year low. African-American unemployment stands at the lowest rate ever recorded. The stock market has smashed one record after another, gaining $8 trillion and more in value. We enacted the biggest tax cuts and reforms in American history. I recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. My duty and the sacred duty of every elected official in this chamber is to defend Americans and their right to the American dream. Because Americans are dreamers too. There is nothing we cannot achieve as long as we have confidence in our values, faith in our citizens, and trust in our God. We will never fail. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. If you missed the State of the Union last night, I think we just gave you a pretty good overview of it in about a, a minute and change there. So I hope I hope you enjoyed that. Those of you who watched it were probably reliving those glorious moments. It was a really powerful speech, well-delivered, presidential. It exuded warmth. It had plenty of bipartisan applause lines. It was a recitation of Trump's accomplishments from his first year. And in many ways, it was a refutation of those who have been telling us that this is going to lead to disaster. The markets will crash. The government will fail. There'll be all kinds of terrible calamity because of Trump. But in fact, it has been a year of considerable progress. The American people are benefiting from the Trump presidency in ways that we would all be much more familiar with if the media cared to tell us about what's really going on. There were plenty of applause lines last last night that should have gotten both political parties on their feet, clapping, cheering even. But that was not what we saw from the Democrats. Oh, no. Democrats saw a different speech entirely, it would seem. You tell me what about the that speech? that room is supposed to respond like this to the great dictator? It was a speech delivered almost from an alternate reality, a fifth dimension. From his racist 
demonizing comments on immigrants. Besieged by criminal investigation. Then the divisiveness, dishonesty, and racism coming from the Trump administration. Stoking, I think many would say, racial tensions. Divisive president. Divisive. Mention the tax cuts. Divisive. Mention the whole rift on immigration. Divisive in the national anthem. Divisive. He's been vulgar. He's been racist. Divisive, I think, is a code word for Republican. You know, divisive means conservative, I guess, because there were plenty of clear olive branches during President Trump's speech where he was reaching out to the other side and talking about things that all Americans should be quite pleased to hear. But I swear it looked like somebody had just ruined Nancy Pelosi's garden party. You know, she was very unhappy throughout the entirety of this. Now, I will say, I think it can get a little a little cheap to do the, oh, well, they didn't stand for this, they didn't stand for that, they didn't clap for this, they didn't clap for that. But there are, you know, within reason, there are times when you'd say, all right, look, if you're going to show up, you know, when someone starts chanting USA, USA, I feel like you're a United States congressman, you're representing the American people, USA should get you kind of excited as chants go. They weren't chanting Trump. They were chanting USA. And in fact, Representative Luis Gutierrez. And if you have not seen the video, I'd recommend that you go check it out. He seemed to storm off. Now, it is possible that he had uh, eaten some bad shellfish, but I think it's much more likely that he just had enough with all this USA talk president last night was doing something of a victory dance and i'm pleased that he did because he has every right to given where he is now taking into account the efforts to tear him down and destroy this presidency as i said to you yesterday it is almost a miracle there is a, a, a sense of of providence behind this rise of Trumpism in the country right now because they've done everything they can to destroy it and they just can't. And it's not like he's barely getting by and nothing worthwhile is happening. Quite the opposite. We've seen a lot of really positive change come to the country over the last 12 months. And with each passing month, I have to say the Trump, the case for Trump and Trumpism grows stronger, not weaker which is exactly the opposite of what we were promised from the beginning. It was a great night last night. I generally don't like State of the Union addresses, and I'm not going to pretend like last night's speech changed my mind on that. I am curmudgeonly. It is my nature. I find State of the Unions to be a little bit uh, monarchical, a little bit like the king and queen will now address the subjects, you know, a little bit, there's a little too much pageantry. But you did get a very important preview of what you can expect from the Democrat Party. They just hate everything that Trump is doing. It does not matter. Trump could have stood up there last night and announced a cure for cancer that his administration had reached because of some executive order he had signed. And you would have still had some sour faces in the Democrat gallery out there. They just can't help it. If Trump is involved, they hate it. If Trump did it, it must be bad. Very noticeable last night that the line about the lowest, 
the lowest black unemployment in the history of this country. A huge applause line, as it should be. And yet the Congressional Black Caucus didn't want to cheer for that one. At least I didn't see any cheering, clapping, whatever, however one chooses to show their support of this. And it's disconcerting because here's what it tells you. And I'll tell you this State of the Union addresses. They'll be forgotten. It'll be forgotten pretty, pretty quickly. All you're left with after a, a few days is the impression Unless you work in the media or you're a columnist or a blogger or something, you're not going to go through the transcript and look at the little details. Although I will talk to you coming up in just a few moments about the policy focal point, immigration, and what that means for the Trump administration and for the year ahead. But you were given two major takeaways, in my view. One is that President Trump is a force of nature. It's just true. The guy is amazing. Now, I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm not saying I agree with everything he does. I'm not going to say I don't even have some problems with some of the decision making under his administration. I certainly do. But taken all in, if you look at the totality of Trumpism thus far, I'm like, this is this is incredible. I mean, they have. We'll hopefully find out soon if this is, in fact, provable i think we're already analytically in line with this they've weaponized the intelligence community against the president think about that there's a there's an argument to be made that it's it's almost miraculous that he did not get impeached his first year based on what they have done based on the dirty pool the underhanded dirty tricks they have engaged in and yet here you are standing tall last night and giving a Very powerful speech. So what will people remember? They'll remember that at least those who have either an open mind or are willing to see Trump and the administration for what it is so far. They will remember that the president is incredibly resilient and has some political instincts that are like a gift. It's just true. This guy's story, we're, we're getting used to the crazy and the new cycle day in and out here, but Trump's story is amazing. And then there's another part of it that I can't tell you is a happy thing. Another important takeaway from last night that will tie into our discussions coming up about immigration, about the release, the memo, you know, about this FISA memo, which is pretty much the primary news story and and national debate in the country right now and will be until the memo gets released. It's that the successes of Trumpism, the successes of this administration do not matter one bit to his detractors. They have made their bets and they are not going to change. They're not going to shift. They're not going to moderate. They are all in on failure. And I mean to the point where because people will say, oh, Buck, what about what about Republicans that were hoping that Obama's agenda would fail? Oh, no, no. I'm not just saying that they want Trump's agenda to fail. I'm saying they will not be happy. They will not be satisfied until Trump is done out of office, finished. And it doesn't matter how good Trumpism is for the American people in the interim. It does not matter how reasonable he is, as we have started to see on this immigration debate. 
It's not about policy for Democrats. It's about power. They are out of power. They have been wounded in terms of their pride. They are all about whipping up emotions. You heard that montage we played of just, oh, it's racism. and There was no racism in the speech last night. The president of the United States was singling out Americans one after another and a former North Korean, a defector who's now in South Korea. But people of all backgrounds, all races saying, look at this story. Let's clap for this person. Let's share our support and prayers for this person. A black family who lost their two black families who lost their uh, daughters in Long Island to MS-13 gang violence. Otto Warmbier's parents who lost their son to the violent, sadistic dictator of North Korea, heroic first responders, our military. To say that the Trump administration is peddling racism is to be blind to what was going on last night. But that's the narrative, and it won't change. And what you've seen now is it doesn't matter how much Trump is willing to meet them halfway. They want the whole way. That means Trump impeached. That means Trump out of office and whatever price the American people have to pay with suffering, economic malaise, downturn, whatever they have to do, they're willing to do. And as an American, I will tell you, and I usually don't say things like that because it sounds a little sanctimonious and I leave the sanctimony to the Democrats. But I do find it troubling. I do think that their hatred has for some time now reached pathological proportions. And that was the other big takeaway from last night. We're going to get into immigration, the memo, and a whole lot more coming up here, team. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We have a jam-packed show. Let it those lines. Also, if you want to send me your thoughts on Twitter, at Buck Sexton, I'll be right back. Senator, it's John Heilman here. I want to ask you a question that under almost any other circumstances would be ridiculous and absurd, but under these circumstances I think is actually warranted. Uh, is it possible that the Republican chairman of the House Intel Committee has been compromised by the Russians? Is it possible that they actually have a Russian agent? Doesn't his behavior speak of that, though? I mean, I'm not the first person who's raised this, and there are people in the intelligence committee, in the intelligence community, and, and others with great expertise in this area who look at him and say, that guy's been compromised. Compromised, they say. Compromised. A Russian agent. They're wondering if Nunes is a Russian agent. Some pretty crazy reactions. Oh, we got the congressman with us now. All right. Well, let's get to the congressman. Congressman Sean Duffy joins us, everybody. Congressman, thank you so much. It is good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, So tell me a bit about what you thought of uh, the State of the Union last night. I mean, it was good, but why was it good? What should we remember? Well, I think it was good because the president... Uh, I think did a nice job of laying out the economic successes of the last year uh, when we moved from this collectivist redistributionist economy of Barack Obama. We're able to go to a free enterprise, you know, limited government, reduced regulation, lower taxes. This thing has exploded. People have you know better wages, more opportunity, um, uh, a market that has been up. So, I mean, I think he laid that out well. I think he did a good job of laying out the DACA situation and, and the point that he's trying to be compassionate and fair with DACA. Uh, and then also from North Korea um, to ISIS and the successes that he's had because he's relied on the military men and women, I thought was 
uh, was really effective as well. And, you know, I thought even though Democrats were, I think, shamefully partisan in their effort to try to, you know, say we're not going to stand when he even says great things that we agree with. We're not going to stand when he mentions black unemployment is at a historic low, and so too is Hispanic unemployment. They sit for that. Did they ever get in on a standing ovation? I mean, I didn't see it, no. but I wasn't. No, they don't. They, uh, well, some of them did, but you know, a lot of them just sat for the whole um, speech. And so, they, you know what? I thought that was that was, that was sad on their part. But um, the president rose above that, and I thought delivered an outstanding address. Yeah, I thought he did a very good job. I'm just wondering: do, do, is it is it your expectation, Congressman, that? The Democrats are not going to be willing to budge at all on their immigration proposal, which is effectively, we'll throw a little more money your way, but we're just going to get amnesty. They're saying, we'll, we'll window address border security, but not really do it. And we want amnesty for whether, I mean, that, you know, there could be 3 million people. They don't want to end chain migration, so that 3 million could turn to 10 or 12 million. We still, I mean, they don't want to change anything with regard to immigration. So, President Trump isn't stupid. He's not going to take a bad deal, nor will we in the House. So, listen, if they don't come to the table and, and, and talk seriously uh, about border security with real money for border security, there's not going to be a deal. And, border, listen, dreamers are going to start getting deported. They're going to be start sending out, they're going to be sent out of the country. And I thought the president did a nice job making so they all understand that there's a deal on the table to keep you here. Democrats don't want to secure your border. And and that's the key to making this happen. And I think I think Hispanics will blame Democrats, not Donald Trump, because uh, because of the fact that they've been in transition. They've they've ducked their heels in and aren't willing to move and negotiate. Congressman, we've only got about a minute before we have to go into a hard break. But I did want to ask you, I feel like I'd be remiss if I did not. The memo. What's what's your feeling on it? What's your case for it? It's uh, I, I think some of my colleagues have over, oversold it. It really on it's uh, interesting. Yeah, they have that. But, they, they, it's, but listen, it's, it's, it's incredibly troubling, uh, concerning, and when you get a chance to read it for yourself, uh, you'll see why the FBI and the DOJ don't want to have it released. You'll see why Democrats don't want it released. And it lays out timelines, it lays out individuals' names, and information that was used, um, and it doesn't draw conclusions. It's all about facts. And it's uh, we need to clean house. But we should the, sure the memo should concerned. be released. You have no concerns with oh, the national security. Oh, I've called for it. Oh, no, listen, when you see it, you'll think it's a joke. That's what I keep telling people. Concerns. I mean, the government thinks everything is classified, Congressman. That's a whole separate conversation. I've, I have to tell people that they, they there's laughable stuff. I mean, they're still still got stuff from like the first world war that's classified. So anyway, we got a roll for now, Congressman. Uh, thank you so much. I classify because I don't want to release it because it's embarrassing to them. That's the only classification they have. Nothing about top security American uh, safety stuff. All right. I hear you. Congressman Sean Duffy, everybody. Congressman, thank you for making the time. I know you're busy. Come back soon. Will do. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Team, we are going to roll, and uh, I'm going to finish that conversation about the Russian agent that was brought up by that guy on MSNBC. Is it possible Devin Nunes is a Russian agent? We'll get into that and more. Stay with me. We slashed the business tax rate from 35% all the way down to 21% so American companies can compete and win against anyone else anywhere in the world. These changes alone are estimated to increase average family income by more than $4,000. We eliminated an especially cruel tax that fell mostly on Americans, 
making less than $50,000 a year, forcing them to pay tremendous penalties simply because they couldn't afford government-ordered health plans. We repealed the core of the disastrous Obamacare. The individual mandate is now gone. Thank Individual mandate is toast. President Trump last night at the State of the Union. I'm sorry, I went out of order there for a second, folks. I wanted to get in it. Uh, I wanted to keep going on the State of the Union. I called for a Russia clip, then I realized we had the congressman. So you know, you got to. I got it's. It's hey, it's live radio. I got to keep you on your toes, right? So we will get back to the the comment. Was that Heilman, by the way? Was that who said that? Right. I was. Who's the Who's the one who got who got tossed? Halpern's the one that got tossed. Halpern got tossed. Heilman is still that Surtime show. Right, right, same show. Right, Right. that's why I get these are MSNBC analysts. For those of you, you're like, fuck. Why do you, you know, if you're gonna make fun of them, you gotta know who they are. Uh, So, I'm I'm back to the State of the Union. Uh, Pardon me for the topic whiplash for a moment there, but I I call I called for the wrong clip before. That's what happens sometimes. I'm writing them down on a little notepad here. You know, hey, it's uh, this is always a. This is, this is like live theater, folks. You know, sometimes a, a cell phone camera goes off in the front row and uh, the guy who's in the middle of his uh, solo, you know, can't see anything. I don't know. I haven't seen live theater in a long time. All right. So back to uh, the Trump State of the Union. Like I, it, was, it was a very powerful speech, but I, I give you the real deal, which is that there'll be impressions that linger from it. But in terms of the specifics on, uh, on policy... Very little, I think, you'll take from it that uh, will will stay, right? There's, yeah, I mean, he talked about jobs and investment, and, but it's much of it is if you're following politics, if you're listening to what's going on in the day to day of the administration, then you're already quite aware of this. Um, the one place, though, and I mentioned this before, so I did tease this. Uh, the one place where there was some real policy discussion uh, had to do with immigration. And there was a particularly uh, powerful line from the president. And I thought this was the single biggest standout that, look, the America, America is strong because the American people are strong. It's a great line, but it's, it's, it's Reagan-esque. Yes, it is what you would expect from a Republican speech at a state of a union. Now, let's be honest. But this is a little different, though. This is a little bit of a of a pushback against the Democrats who are always trying to control the language we use as a means of controlling the debate that we can have. And that's why when he said this phrase, which I've now built up beyond anyone's wildest expectations, when he said this phrase, I was like, ooh. As President of the United States, my highest loyalty, my greatest compassion, my constant concern is for America's children, America's struggling workers, and America's forgotten communities. My duty and the sacred duty of every elected official in this chamber is to defend Americans, to protect their safety, their families, their communities, and their right to the American dream, because Americans are dreamers, too. Americans are dreamers, too. Now, I've been fighting against this whole notion of calling a class of illegal aliens dreamers because it inherently 
uh, prejudices the American people in favor of that group of illegal aliens. I'm not unsympathetic to it on the you know with the proviso that we're actually talking about somebody who came who was brought here illegally. I will say though these are adults. As far as I understand, almost entirely these are adults now. So we have to ask the question, well, but do the parents get to stay too? Is there zero accountability for this? You call them dreamers. It's like, well, anyway, if you are a dreamer because your parents were brought here as, or your parents brought you here as a child and therefore you have no culpability in the illegal status that as a dreamer you've been, or as a, see, that's what happens, right? As somebody covered under DACA, as a DACA recipient, uh, I want to know on what basis I can't make the same emotional appeal for anyone from anywhere in the world, especially given the war-torn regions of the world right now, if they can just find their way here, if they have the, the means one way or another to get into the country, how can we tell them they can't stay? You see, at the, at the root of the immigration debate are a couple of concepts that the left just either ignores or completely bastardizes, mischaracterizes, lies about. Uh, one is the notion of sovereignty, that a government that does not have control over who comes and goes in any way ceases to be a government. How do you enforce? Democrats love taxing people, right? How do you enforce taxation if you don't know who's coming, who's going, and you have no means of controlling that? H- how would you make policy and expect it to be actually implemented? If people could just come and go as they please in any number. And this is why also when we talk about open borders, and I think this is in a, this is important for our discussion. People say, well, the border's not open. We've got border guards. and We've got. Yeah. Open borders does not mean literally zero borders. OK. Open borders means either an incredibly porous border or a border that is. Uh, it, it's either very easy to go through. Or there are very few hurdles for one to go through it, right? Meaning that anyone can basically come or anyone can basically come illegally. If you really want to talk open borders, there's not a single open borders country in existence. So it's a nonsense concept. There's not one. right. Okay, somebody's somebody's going to send me an email. Technically, yes, Vatican City does not have borders. And Monaco, I think, does not have borders. But that's because Monaco is a state lit and it's part of France. And trust me, they're all about law and private property in Monaco. So, oh, and if I wanted to be a permanent resident of Monaco, no shot. I think you need at least a million dollars. So I'm like a million dollars short. I think you need at least a million dollars to be a resident, a permanent resident of Monaco. But anyway, I I knew that I'd get the, oh, but what about Vatican City? I know. Vatican City. Thanks. Open borders. (laughs) It's like saying the Jesuits are communists. They hold everything in common. Yeah, it's. You know, maybe a, a communism can work for like four people living in a house somewhere, but that doesn't mean that it's a good governing system. And the Jesuits would be very upset if anyone actually said that they were communists. They just hold property in common with each other, but that's not the same thing. Because, uh, you know, communism and godlessness. All right, I'm going down a rabbit hole. Pardon me. Back to the Trump dossier. I mean, <laughs> the Trump dossier. I want to get to that so badly. Not the Trump dossier, the, the FISA memo. We'll get to that in just a few moments. Immigration, sovereignty, they do not believe in sovereignty. And also, they will constantly agitate without ever being explicit about this point. They will be agitators and use this as a means of dividing people and complicating 
governance for those of us who believe in law and order, and that is that the nation-state system is inherently unfair. Just this is a I know this is a deep philosophical place for us to go, maybe, but or maybe you think it's just a weird philosophical place for us to go. The nation state is inherently unfair. You know, how when you were a kid, you were told life isn't fair. By the way, I feel like kids aren't told that today anymore. I feel like now kids are all like life has to be fair. if it's not fair, then you have to get the government to make it fair. And that's always going to end in disaster. By the way. Life is not fair. Where you are born in terms of what country you're born in is unfair. Some are pretty close to each other in terms of, you know, one is, I feel like if I were born in the UK or I don't know, maybe if I was born in Brazil, I'd be a lot happier. It seems like Brazil's a really great place to hang out. I got some friends down there. But, you know, there are some countries that are comparable, but it is, it is an unfair thing. People refer to it as the, you know, the accident of birth that I was born with American citizenship and other people are born in the middle of war-torn Aleppo circa three years ago. That's unfair. There is nothing we can do about that, really, that does not, at some, at some way, acknowledge that it is unfair. Because if we really think we're going to ameliorate, if we are going to eliminate the unfairness of different nation states entirely... Then we're talking about the eradication of sovereignty, the eradication of the nation state as a concept. It is on. So that's the thing we have to. It it is unfair. We are telling people you may be the whole notion of an immigration system that is based on rule of law means that you are telling people we have policies, we have laws. They are somewhat arbitrary in their origin. The whole notion of national boundaries and borders is kind of an arbitrary thing. I mean, there's some geographical basis for it, but there's certainly a level of arbitrariness to that. And sorry, but there's not there's not room at the inn for everybody. And the other side of that is that as a, a citizen of a nation state, there are obligations that I have that people who are not citizens do not have, right? This is, and you get into taxation and Keep in mind, our government is the one that says, we'll tax you no matter where you live anywhere in the world if you're a citizen. Which, And our government also will say, if you've broken federal law in this country, unless you're in a non-extradition country that's really going to be a problem for us to send you know, the FBI to come pick you up, we'll get you anywhere in the world. So you know, our government also has particularly serious uh, hooks into each one of us as citizens, too. And so that's I think we need to just start from that basic understanding of it's it's about sovereignty and that it's somewhat arbitrary and that it's not fair. And that when you say that we have to enforce rule of law with immigration, we're not saying, oh, it's because we don't like people from other countries or they're not as good as we are or anything. That's that's not the basis for this. That's not the point. That's not true. What we are saying is, look, we got a system here. It is a. This is another part of this. The whole notion of of a country and a country that's going to have sovereignty that matters, it's all based on on shared a shared culture and shared perception. Civic culture, I mean now. I mean, you know, some people like pizza, some people, you know, want to eat pho, whatever. People that I don't mean that kind of culture. I mean the sense of your obligations to the state, what your expectations are for governance, uh, self-rule, individual rights. We need broad-based agreement on that, and that only comes from a series of very important shared concepts and beliefs. 
And that can only continue on if, in fact, we are able to propagate our society, and part of that is controlling immigration. I mean, I know this may be, I could just sit here and pound the table about MS-13, although I am the guy who's been telling you about cartels, and you'll notice that this is now people, yeah, MS-13 and the wall and drugs, and MS-13 are essentially, yeah, they're horrifically violent and brutal and ter- terrible. you got to think of them as, they're like the, the street-level pipe-swinging, you know, mafia soldiers, but they're not the dons. They're not the ones who are actually calling the shots, but that's another. There are different uh, cartels that I've been t- talking to you about that are, that are running the show. All right, I, I, we got we to get more on immigration going here. The Russia collusion situation, we'll get into that in the next hour. Also, the rele- release the memo. Release the memo. Release the memo. Remember release the Kraken? The only cool part of that, that movie was garbage, and I love, I actually have, a few compendiums of ancient Greek mythology on my shelf at home because I really love ancient Greek mythology. And so I'm like, maybe the acting is going to be garbage, but at least the CGI will be. No, those movies were terrible. I'm like, how do you take ancient Greek myths, some of the most, I mean, short of Shakespeare, probably the most compelling series. And some people would say it's even, well, Shakespeare borrows a lot from it, but (sighs) Release the Kraken. That's the only cool part of the whole thing. I think that was uh, the guy, right? That's the guy from Taken. All right. I'm losing it here, folks. I'm going to come right back to you. I'm going to focus in. I'm going to set it back to neutral. I'm going to cool the jets. We're going to come back here and get into immigration. Stay right there. For decades, open borders have allowed drugs and gangs to pour into our most vulnerable communities. They've allowed millions of low-wage workers to compete for jobs and wages against the poorest Americans. Most tragically, they have caused the loss of many innocent lives. That is a compelling data point that the Trump administration has been making for some time. There are real human costs to illegal immigration. And and here's what I think is a necessary addendum to this discussion. Yes, it is true that not every illegal immigrant is in a gang. Yes, it is true that a vast majority of illegal immigrants are uh, nice people who don't want to hurt anyone, who just want to work in America. And I understand that. See, I'm not discounting that. But as part of the cost of our unwillingness, because it is an unwillingness to enforce immigration laws, we are suffering casualties. We, the American people, are losing some of our own. And yes, it's it's terrible and tragic enough when you just when you look at the uh, acts of violence by illegal immigrants. I would note that we've got a very large percentage of illegal aliens who are in federal prison. They don't keep statistics, everyone, on illegal aliens in state prison. And most violent crimes would fall under state jurisdiction, although there's, you know, I'm saying as a generalization, right? If somebody walks in the street and stabs somebody, it's usually not a federal crime. It's usually a state crime. So we have no real sense of what proportion of violent crime illegal immigrants are responsible for. We don't really know. And that's just, that's again, a fact. But the inability to secure the border, and I know that some of the prototypes were tested earlier this week, the wall prototypes, uh, the inability to secure the border is not just a question of the uh, 
damage done to our sovereignty and what does this mean for the economy and the competing for low-wage jobs, although that's all true, and also just the notion of, of rule of law and, and that the laws have meaning. Uh, there's also, as I've been saying, the enormous cost of the illegal drugs flowing across the border. And I am quite convinced, and I get more convinced each day with more reading, I am quite convinced that we will find that the uh, hand of the cartels in the opioid epidemic is is larger than most people are aware of or many people, I think, want to be aware of. Because once you start looking at that, 60,000 dead. One year, everyone. What percentage of them are prescription drug overdoses versus... And I would note that illegal drug sales, there are dealers, so to speak, who will... If they're selling heroin, they'll also sell, uh, you know, they'll sell prescription fentanyl or whatever it is. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it's there's not a, a cartel tie-in, which is just an, another way of saying an organized organized crime tie-in. Um, it's funny they don't really refer to it as cartels back in Mexico. That's more of an American. That's how we describe it. They just call it el narco which is why I picked up a copy of that book uh, by Yon Grillo, El Narco, um, which I finished, and I'd say it's very, uh, very well done. I mean, he's clearly anti-drug war, but there's a lot of really worthwhile information in there. So Trump understands this. He knows that the border is a national security and public safety issue as well, and I think that that was an important note for him to hit last night. All right, we got to get a little more going here on the uh, memo. Release the memo. We'll get into that coming up. Stay with me. I think it'll, it'll be embarrassing to Adam Schiff once people realize the extent to which he went to keep them from learning any of this. So that that would be the embarrassment. Going to court to 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 uh, help Fusion GPS, so we can't find out that they paid for the for uh, the dossier yeah. um, and that they were working for the DNC. Um, that's a pretty big step to go to court to try to keep the American people from learning something. So look. If it were up to Adam Schiff, you wouldn't know about Hillary Clinton's email. You wouldn't know about the server. You wouldn't know who paid for the dossier. So I do find it ironic that he has his own memo now, because if it were up to him, we wouldn't know any of it. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. There's Trey Gowdy laying it down on release the memo, uh, which I'm hoping will happen within a matter of days. I think it's probably close to close to release. Uh, I can't imagine how the Trump team would go back on that at this point. It seems to me like that's just not really feasible. So there's uh, there's an expectation among many of, us, many of us that releasing the memo has to happen here, and I think it is going to happen. But you'll notice that we had just in the last hour a congressman on. He said, look, the memo's been a little overblown. Those of you who listen to the show know that's been my concern all along, although the Democrats have been in such a panic over it that I have to wonder, you know, that's the I thought that it was going to be. I'll be honest with you, as I always am. I thought it was going to be a little bit overblown. And then I saw the Democrats just metaphorically dripping in sweat all over the place. And I thought, well, there's got to be something really. And now we've got the FBI. Now, look, here's. The FBI came out today, said very concerned. I saw this. Oh, they're very concerned. Let me tell you something about federal bureaucracies. And those of you who have worked, particularly on the national security and law enforcement side of the federal government. Hey, guys. Hey, buddies. uh, You know 
what I'm going to say here, which is the bureaucracy always, always, always protects itself first and foremost. And I mean a lot of places that are like mission first, it's really bureaucracy first. That's just the way that it works. Now, that's not to say that every person in that organization feels that way. But when you are the, the director, the deputy director, the number three, four, five, six, seven, you know, when you're running these places, overwhelmingly, the impetus is for you, whoever you may be, to do what you can to keep the budget protected, to keep the bureaucratic uh, prerogatives protected, and to prevent shame from befalling your organization or agency because that will then be a black mark on your record when you move on to do something else. One thing that I also just wanted to toss out there, because I went on a little bit of a rant yesterday about Comey, and some of you are like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know any of that about Comey. I didn't know that he was the one that was, uh, was trying to put Martha Stewart in the stockade for basically nothing, and, and did. I mean, put her, in, put her in jail. I didn't know that he was the one who appointed the Javert-like special prosecutor to go after Dick Cheney. Uh, Dick Cheney. That was the whole purpose of that. They were going after Dick Cheney. They thought they were going to get him, and they couldn't because he didn't do anything. So then they just tried to get somebody else around him. Does that sound familiar, by the way? Not, a, not an unknown tactic, it feels like, huh? But, and then when you add into it that Comey has never been a law enforcement guy, really, or when I mean law, never been a weapon-carrying, door-kicking, wrestling, the crazy drug dealer in the street and hoping makes it home to his wife and kids, law enforcement. He's never been that guy. And I think that there's a, an, a, a big lie of omission here that Comey is the FBI, as I was saying to you yesterday. One other thing to keep in mind, because this was bothering me, and, and I try to always bring things to the table here. You won't hear any, anywhere else, right? Because I know that you've had all day to... You want to just catch up on the headlines. I'm not here to give you the headlines. I'm here to give you the benefit of whatever I can from insights and experience and from reading for anywhere from five to seven hours a day, which I'd say is people ask me what's my preparation. I usually say it's about five to seven hours a day of reading. Uh, Comey was at that fund, Bridgewater Associates. I mentioned that to you. Paid millions of dollars there. And I would just point out that why is a... Why is an attorney with no finance experience worth millions of dollars to a massive hedge fund based in Connecticut? What, what would be the, yeah, sure, it's kind of a, a shiny object situation of, hey, like, look at this famous person and plenty of people that are at the senior level of government will go on and they'll get some job that they're on the board. The best thing is to be on the board, right? Four telephonic phone calls a year. You get paid some crazy great salary for being on the board of a big company. You're on the board and you just kind of sit in a conference call and get to vote, right? It's not very hard. That's the great, that's the real sweet spot. You know what I mean? If any want to put Buck Sexton on the board of your company, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not saying no is all I'm saying. Uh, but Comey was hired by Bridgewater. And I've been saying, you know, he's, this strikes me as interesting. And what I haven't been able to look into yet, but I would just be wondering is, was Comey close with anybody in the, say, the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York, in the Southern District? Because, you know, it would be really interesting for a massive multi-billion dollar hedge fund 
that wants to make sure they never run into any regulatory issues or worse. Um, really interesting if they thought, you know, what's a good idea to have the former FBI director on the pay or former whatever he was. He wasn't, I think, direct. I think he became director. Um, he was director after this, but he was very senior at DOJ to have the former, you know, assistant U.S. attorney for whatever and former FBI guy, whatever his title was. And um, is he fr- was he friends with Preet Bharara, the U.S. attorney for New York, who we've all seen now is basically a Democrat operative pretending to be, a, you know, just about the law. And now we see he's on CNN every five minutes. Right. I just think this is an interesting connection that maybe I'm going to look into and report back to you on. I know that Comey worked in the New York area. I think he may have been an AUSA, an assistant U.S. attorney in New Jersey. But just wouldn't it be interesting if the last honest, you know, why am I telling you this? Because I'm trying to really dig into this narrative of Comey's the last honest public servant in America. And it looks like he got paid millions of dollars. I can't really figure out why. But if I were the guy writing the checks, I'd be like, you know, what's a good idea to have somebody who's buddies with a lot of folks at DOJ, especially the Southern District, because that's where you'd most likely get charges for any kind of financial impropriety, like insider trading or should we maybe do we think Comey's maybe friends with Preet, maybe their butt or, or anyone else in that office? It's just a let's say it's a theory. But lately, my theories seem to be working out a lot. I go, you know, what would be interesting. And then I look it up and I go, oh, wow. Look at that. But on to uh, a little more about. Release the memo. Uh, I, I have to take into my assessment here that we had Congressman Duffy on before. And he's just said, look, he's seen the memo and he's saying, look, it's uh, it's not as big a blockbuster as we have been. And that's been my concern all along. I was talking to you about the federal bureaucracy before, just so you understand when people will say, oh, but the FBI director says or, oh, yeah, that's because. The truth is they. Are in a position where it's to their benefit, I mean, they're going to want to do what they can to defend their institution. This is going to make the FBI look bad. And there's a lot that you can convince yourself when it's your job to run the FBI and you've got a whole but you got thousands of agents who are supposed to respect and at least respect you, if not admire you, at least respect. You know, maybe then you want to protect the institution. You know, I'll say this. I know I know this from from Langley that the first consideration that most of my Langley friends most of my uh, my CIA buddies, when I've talked to them in the past or when I was there with them, first consideration they have about whether someone's a good director or not is do they take care of the agency? That's number one. If anyone, And so there's some legitimacy to this as well, I'm just saying. If anyone feels like you're not taking care of the troops, so to speak, not actual troops, but if anyone feels like you're not taking care of the team, it doesn't really matter what your politics are or how on the up and up you are, how you know honest and full of integrity you are. You start to lose, start to lose the uh, support of the rank and file. So I'm not surprised at all that Christopher Ray. What I'm trying to tell you is I'm not surprised that Christopher Ray would have an objection to something that might give the FBI a big old black eye. That's not surprising. The Democrat objections. I got an idea. Let's get into those. Let's have some fun with those. And also, uh, if you got any thoughts on the State of the Union or 
release the memo, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Look, I've been in the area of national security, releases, Pentagon papers now for over 50 years. In almost every case, when it gets released, people throw up their arms and they say, what was the problem here? What was the national security issue here? Why are we so concerned? We should always err in favor of releasing rather than withholding, because most claims to censorship based on national security turn out to be overstated, overwrought, and sometimes just out and out false. So... Uh, I don't think there are any great risks. If there were great risks, believe me, the national security people would be on top of it in a minute. So I think this is something where the American public has the right to see it, make their own judgment. There's the Dersh, Professor Dershowitz of Harvard, laying it down. He's completely correct here, folks. He is spot on with this. You know, the the, the CIA thinks that, you know, what what some of them had for lunch yesterday is classified. I mean, it's... You know, you look at the FBI, it's the same thing. You know, every, everything is classified all the time. And then when this happens and you have, keep in mind, this isn't like they let a bunch of people just walk in off the street like, hey, pick some documents that you think would be cool to read. You know, they're not like hunting around for the Roswell files here. This is on a matter of urgent national importance. I keep saying this. I said it earlier tonight on Fox. A presidency is at stake here. Even if the Mueller probe does not get what the Democrats are hoping it will, which is something that finally, for once, for the first time, creates some real issue of Russia connectivity to one of the Trump people, not even Trump himself. Uh, We need to know. And if they don't, pull all that together, even if they don't prove anything, the process is the punishment and the Democrats know that. That's why they they just want the investigation to keep going and going and grinding on, you know. The Democrats view the Mueller probe as like the really annoying relative that you can never get to leave your house, you know, who's just, just, you know, just in your ear all the time, won't stop, and it can drive you mad and prevent you from getting done what you have to get done on a day-to-day basis. They just want that annoying, grinding voice, so to speak, to be wearing the administration down. That's what the Mueller probe really is. Russia collusion. This whole thing has been such a farce. It's a good thing that I'm not like the White House comms director or chief of staff or something. I'd be like, fire Mueller. I'm done with this. What are they going to do? They're going to appoint another special prosecutor to... Look into the firing of somebody. I'm allowed to fire. Or, you know, I know it would have to be Rosenstein at the DOJ, but, you know, tell Rosenstein to fire him. He won't? Fine. Rosenstein resigns. Put somebody else in place. We'll fire him. Just the whole thing is such garbage. It really is. Dershowitz is right. I will, I will tell you this. I'm now, the pendulum is swinging a little bit back towards my initial feelings here. You're, you're going to find out the following, I think, in this memo release, which is now, we're told... CNN breaking news. Nunes memo could be released as early as Thursday. So scary. If this memo comes out tomorrow or the next day or whenever, what you're going to find is is most likely. Here is my prediction. My prediction is you will see that Fusion GPS was part of the FISO memo application. You will see that there 
the concerns over sources and methods and national security, sensitive information was just laughable. There's nothing in it that's going to get anyone, you know, that's going to put anyone in jeopardy, that's going to hurt our national security, which is going to make us really question the judgment of a lot of, well, certainly the Democrats in the House Intelligence Committee, but also these people at the FBI are making all this noise. Really? You think this is you think this is sensitive? This is national security information? I don't think so. But I also will tell you this now as well, as part of my prediction, that this will be litigated by the Democrats endlessly. They'll say there's information that you don't know and that the omission of that information means that the conclusions of the Nunes assessment can't be taken seriously. And they'll say, and we would love to get that information for you. And then the FBI will come in and say, yeah, no, you know, we can't. That's actually the really sensitive stuff. And we're going to go through this whole process again. You see, they're fighting this tooth and nail as a bureaucratic slow roll. By the time that we get through enough iterations, enough versions of, hey, can we have the memo? No, you can't. Hey, can we have that next memo? No, you can't. They're hoping that Democrats might win the midterms, might win the House, and then it just turns into a, and I mean, think about what they've done in the minority, folks. And then imagine Democrats in the majority in the House. Right now they're saying there are about 20 true toss-up seats and that it's leaning Democrat. But, you know, they're, of course, they're going to say that. You know, whatever. Uh, but imagine if Democrats did get the majority in the House. All this comes, all this transparency stuff comes to a screeching halt. And it's just going to be one. They're going to set up, you know, special investigations in the House of each and every. There's going to be a special Kushner investigation. There's going to be a Donald Trump Jr. investigation. There's going to be a lady who emptied the trash last night at the White House investigation. It's just going to go on and on. And that's what they're planning. That's they're not going to make a. What are they going to say? Donald Trump's a jerk. You have more money now because of his tax cut. I mean, what are they really going to come up with here? They've been saying he's a racist for so long that it's just. It's just noise now. It just gets lost in the rest of the blah, blah, blah. It's complete and utter garbage. The uh, the sanctimonious crap that I'm seeing, especially from for, you know, people like me, right, formerly such and such three-letter agency or whatever that are going on TV and saying, oh, is our national security in jeopardy. It's like, do these people ever get held to account for being idiots? Look, I know that some of their, their, their people that pay them at MSNBC, CNN, they, they got to say certain stuff. There are certain lines that you know, they've got to they've put out there if they want to keep going on air. But do they have any integrity, any sense of honesty and decency when it comes to a really important issue, which this is. This matters a lot. This isn't a small thing. And... The arguments against it have so far been laughable. It, it, it was, the FBI has been withholding information all along. And then a couple of days ago, the objection to this was, oh, actually, just why don't we release the Republican and Democrat memos based on this FISA abuse memo, right? Why don't we release both of them at the same time? Well, right before that, Democrats didn't want it released at all. So then they say, OK, let's get it released, but we, we're going to accelerate the Democrat memo, so it's released the same time as the Republican memo, that's just a messaging thing. That has nothing to do with national. So they're admitting that it really doesn't matter, right? It's clearly not about national security if, if the, the objection switches entirely to, oh, my gosh, like now we just need to make sure we get our message out there at the same time. 
and, and I can tell you right now, what they're going to say is just that there's a lot of information that you don't have, that you don't know. They're essentially going to tell the American people, don't worry, Trump is still a traitor, and the rest of you are just not smart enough to understand what we know, and we can't tell you, and that's the end of it. That's how they're going to play this game. But So I gave you my prediction. It's going to be Fusion GPS. It's not going to bring down anybody uh, in the FBI. It'll look like they will we'll make the argument that they were sloppy, that they used this opposition document, and that that never should have been. But they'll say, well, it was only part of, and there'll be this... All these people, oh, there's a, you know, there's a longstanding history of the government bringing in open source information and using it for the purposes of, you know, internal classified assessments. And I mean, I, could, I, I just told you that right now. And so that's different than, hey, oppo research. You know, this is like you know, Hillary Clinton hired a, hired a private detective to dig up dirt on Trump. And the FBI was like, hey, we'll take that over for you. That's what this is. That's what this is. And the private detective's like, hey, I got some photos here of Trump, you know? And it's like, wait, who hired you? Hillary? The FBI's just taking It's just crazy. The whole thing. It's nuts. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. Uh, we should talk about this and some other stuff, including Hillary's folks have gotten a lot of heat for not firing a guy who was a harasser. What's the update on that? We got that and more. Stay with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. All right, we've got some calls. Lighten up the Freedom Hut. Let's do it. Uh, Jamie in Clearwater, Florida. Here's lovely this time of year. Hey, Jamie. Hi, Buck. I hope I don't lose you on the bridge. Me too. Uh, (laughs) The last Obama presidential State of the Union was all I, 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 me, 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 I, I, I. Trump had no eyes, no me's. It was us, we, this country, united. And the Democrats sat there like pissed off children and pouted. And he even threw the gauntlet down with the Dreamers way more than anybody had ever, you know, even wanted Amnesty. Nobody wants amnesty, especially after amnesty was given in the 80s. But he's offered all of this so long as the border wall's done, we end chain migration, and so on and so forth. I guarantee you, come come the 8th, those Democrats are going to show their behinds again and shut down this country. Or think they are. And the American people are talking out here. They're saying, we didn't know all this. Why haven't any of this been in the news? Because you're watching the wrong news. Yeah, they need to be listening to the Buck Sexton show. Then they'd know everything that was said last night and more. Yeah, honey, I've been listening to you for years. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Jamie. Shields, hi. Thank you for the excellent call. Appreciate your insights. I just feel like Jamie's not not a lady you want to mess with. You know, She's got some strong opinions there. And And speaking of the standing... Uh, standing and not standing at the State of the Union. So you can't see this, but you can hear what was said. And I will just give you a quick rundown when there was standing. Remember, we're talking about standing ovation for clapping uh, and, or, or when there was not. So let's get to it. 
The state of our union is strong because our people are strong. Since the election, we have created 2.4 million new jobs. African-American unemployment stands at the lowest rate ever recorded. The stock market has smashed one record after another. Three million workers have already gotten tax cut bonuses. The coalition to defeat ISIS has liberated very close to 100 percent of the territory just recently held by these killers. ExxonMobil announced a $50 billion investment. Chrysler is moving a major plant from Mexico to Michigan. Freedom stands tall. All right, you get the idea. We can keep going all day. But, I mean, these are things that you'd think, I don't know. I don't think the Democrat base is going to hold anybody, uh, hold anyone's feet to the fire because they refuse to, or because they did stand, I should say. They did stand when the president's like, yeah, millions of new jobs. Like, no, I, I hate new jobs. Millions of new jobs. I hate new jobs. Oh, I don't know. Seems weird to me. Chris in New Hampshire, what do you think about everything going on in the world and such? Well, when it comes to the, the, uh, the memo, the anger, the angst, the, uh, the opposition to releasing the memo is not the memo, especially in light of what you said. You don't really think it's going to be all that spectacular. I believe that the, it's where the memo is going to take you. It's the trail of blood. It's the muddy footprints. It's, it, it's not the crime itself. It's where it's going to take us. Now, I think, I think, Chris, you've stumbled onto a very important line of thought here, and I want to try to I want to, I want to hop on the train here with you for a second. Uh, if you, what you're saying is correct, and I think it may very well be, it's not that this memo is going to, you know, shut down all the Russia collusion talk, change the whole conversation. But if the memo even just confirms that that Hillary paid for or DNC paid for opposition info was used in a FISA warrant to spy on President Trump and his inner circle during an election, if that then just becomes confirmed information, because right now that's not confirmed. If that is confirmed, then you can have members of the House the Senate, they can do follow on investigations and push for more releases, more transparency, and then we might actually start getting somewhere. So it's like a, it's the, this is the first break in the dam. Is that a fair read of what you're saying? Yeah, another way to, to say it would be in the medical community, when you're doing wound care uh, after surgery, the, the one thing you're really concerned about is to prevent the wound from tunneling. And this wound is tunneling. What is tunneling? I don't even know what that is. Tunneling is, okay, you've had surgery, they close up the wound, and the wound doesn't, it heals from the inside to the outside. And if infection starts, it begins to eat away at the open wound, and it goes deeper and deeper as time goes on. Ah, I see what you're saying. Okay. Huh. Does tunneling lead to sepsis? It could. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm just trying to throw out some medical knowledge here. I got nothing. I mean, I'm just, you know, I, I watch it. I watch a lot of TV. But thank you very much, Chris. Thank you very much, man, for calling in. I appreciate it. Oliver in Utah. What's up, Buck? Johnny Utah. What's going on, Oliver? It is another day in paradise, brother. That's good to hear. So, what else What else do you got for me? Um... I was 
<laughs> it's hilarious watching these Democrats, dude. That, that is generally when, true. When, yes. <laughs> hilarious and terrifying. Well, yeah, that too. Uh, Trump's up there talking about amnesty, or one law amnesty, citizenship, for all the dreamers. And all I saw was, you stole it from me, Trump. You stole it from me. Those are supposed to be my votes. I'm supposed to turn those people over. Huh? Well, I don't follow. Okay, John, uh, Oliver, we're going to have to speed this up, my friend, or we got to roll. So go ahead. If the Democrats gave them what they wanted, they would, those would be Democratic votes. Yes. Trump's a Republican. Trump did it. Now Trump gets Republican votes. And it broke their poor little hearts. No, I don't, I don't think that you're going to get Dreamers voting Republican, although I, I, don't, I don't know. I can't say you're wrong, but I think that's unlikely. Oliver, thank you for calling in from Utah. Oliver's got a lot of passion. He had to, he's, he's, and he's a man who takes his time, which I appreciate. So, where were we? We were talking about, uh, oh, yeah. I wanted to get into some of Hillary's, but do we, do we have anything about Trey Gowdy yet that we can, you know? Oh, wait, we're, we're getting that right now. Mr. Speaker. I, but I like Trey Gowdy. I kid, but I like him. I think he's, and if the stories I'm hearing are true, you know, you're getting a lot of, a lot of uh, different people weighing in on why, such a well-known member of Congress at this point. Did you or did you not? You know, I mean, I, I, I like Trey Gowdy. Um, I like when he gets into prosecutor mode, but I think he's going to go back to working in the justice system. Um, I am straight up looking at, a. by the way, on Fox, they had a photo up a second ago of Hillary, and it was, it, it immediately came to my mind as I was looking at, what happened? I mean, it just jumps right in. I can't stop now. Um. So we're going to talk about Hillary's advisor who did not get fired in the campaign, which is a story that's getting a lot of a lot of play right now. I'm a little I'm a little surprised the story's had quite the legs that it has had, um, but it is getting a lot of attention. So we'll get into some of that. And uh, yeah, I've got, I got a lot of, I got a lot of things, a lot of things to tell you all about that I'm looking forward to. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred buck. We are on a roll, my friends, and we will be right back. Because that first statement was wildly insufficient and tone deaf, I would not say that this is much of an improvement. It's longer, but there's no I'm sorry. There's no I apologize. Uh, She said if I had to do it again, I wouldn't. That's the equivalent of mistakes were made. Uh, it's not, not it's it. not a very it's not a very brave thing to say all the time. We've talked about Donald Trump and his transgressions. I, I believe in calling balls and strikes here. Uh, and when it comes to Hillary Clinton, she is simply not a credible champion for women. Yeah, so that's uh, that's my friend SC Cup. I uh, was that on HLN? I think it was on HLN. She's got a show over in HLN. Um, but making the point about Hillary Clinton, totally agree. And this is something that d- Democrats just don't seem to they don't seem to get the memo, if you know what I mean. They can't figure out that using Hillary Clinton as some kind of champion for women and truth telling and 
speaking truth to power and sexual harassment and all that stuff. She is, I mean, this is like putting a bank robber in charge of bank security, or I should say a getaway driver. To be fair, she wasn't really the bank robber. She was a getaway driver. She was helping. She was an enabler of Clinton's serial predations, not just misbehavior, not just, you know, forgetting to be professional. I mean, Clinton's an accused rapist, everyone. Uh, credibly accused on the record, and the media had zero interest in those stories when they when they came out. Zero interest. It's really what it, what what's so amazing about the Me Too movement and the sexual harassment discussion that's been going on now for months in this country is that you look back and what really I think was the some of the the rocket fuel for conservative media. Drudge Report. Fox News, uh, yes, the Internet in general, but talk radio, thank you very much, and and some of the biggest names in the conservative commentary world, Ann Coulter. It was all about Bill Clinton being a predatory, unrepentant, skirt-chasing maniac, and the media being like, meh, you know, but he's good on stuff that we like. And, and most of the country looking around being like, hold, wait, hold, hold on a second. What? Doesn't matter? And so that's why when you get this latest story about Clinton, it's just more of the same. They didn't want to scandal. They didn't want to ruffle any feathers. Didn't want to deal with anything. Here's what the New York Times reports. Hillary Clinton said on Tuesday night that she should have fired a top aide in her 2008 presidential campaign accused of sexual harassment. I very much understand the question I'm being asked as to why I let an employee on my 2008 campaign keep his job despite his inappropriate workplace behavior, Mrs. Clinton said in a statement on Facebook. The short answer is this. If I had to do it again, I wouldn't. End quote. You know, that's a very Clintonian way to deal with this. That's that feels a little bit to me when you got a Clinton who's saying if I had to do it again, I wouldn't. Feels a little bit to me like that saying, yeah, I wish I hadn't been caught. Do we think that, you know, if she had been able to get away with this, she'd feel bad about it later on? I don't think so. I think that, when I say get away with it, she could have ignored this and then it would have just been left to go. I I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think that's the case here. I got to tell you, I think there's something else. Something else going on with Madame Secretary. Oh, the guy in question here is named uh, Burns Strider. Wow, that's quite a name. You know, kind of, and this is coming from a guy named Buck Sexton. But Burns Strider, it sounds kind of like you know those uh, those books that they used to sell in the grocery stores with like the guy with the long hair and the six pack and like the the woman, you know, on the yeah, the little the, the little romance novels. Don't look at me like I'm crazy. The Fabio stuff. You just looked at me like I was going to weird grocery stores as a child or something. No, you know, forgive me for not knowing about Fabio. Yeah, all right, whatever. You can make this about Fabio all you want. The point is, there used to be these little, you know, novels that they would. All right, fine. I I just remember seeing when I was a kid. I was like, "Whoa, what's that all about?" You got these guys with long hair and and like set in different historical periods. Anyway, Burn Strider sounds like the lead character for one of those. You know, um, but this guy, uh. Yeah, he he falls into a a pretty established mold here of what you would expect many of these harasser types 
to be like, you know, it's uh, such a, I don't know, such a type, these guys. They are uh, looking for younger female subordinates and harassing them and trying to use their position to cajole them, to pressure them into behavior. Clinton said about this, uh, quote, I decided to demote him, docking his pay, separate him from the woman, assign her to work directly for my then deputy campaign manager, put in place technical barriers to his emailing her and require that he seek counseling. He would also be warned that any subsequent harassment of any kind toward anyone would result in immediate termination. Now, you see, here's the thing. If I'm going to gauge that, this has been, Fox has been covering this night after night. I understand that part of this is just Clinton hypocrisy. I, I mean, I can't get enough, right? So there's that. But part of this as well is I don't know... You know, I'm, I'm trying to it's almost like judging the memo here that I can't read or haven't been able to read yet. I don't know how bad this guy's behavior really was. And that's such an important, you know, did, did he write like I, I literally have no idea. It might have. Do we do you know what it Mike? Was it really do we know what the behavior was or was it just bad? We just know not, you know, not right. Bad behavior. Right. That's all. There's no this isn't like Weinstein where we find out we're like, oh, God, this guy needs to nah, go to it's, prison. Uh, it's not like Weinstein, not that I've heard. They haven't been too forthcoming okay. on exactly what it was. So, yeah. So we don't know exactly what it was. But see, that's why it's it's hard to to judge this totally, because I want to say, look, if the guy, you know, was he 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 was punished. I mean, it wasn't like this was completely ignored. Um, I think that the, the reason that pointing this out with the Clintons is something that people are interested in is because, you know, Hillary Clinton, you'd figure she may have. The, the ultimate glass ceiling breaker that she was poised to be as the first woman president, that she would, when she says things like zero tolerance, and it would take all that very seriously. And you know, it looks like maybe not. Again, I need to know how bad this guy's behavior was, though. Absent that, it's tough to really say whether the sanctions against him were appropriate or appropriate or not. Um, anyway. Roger in Shelby, Ohio. What's going on, Roger? Hi, Buck. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for calling in. Good. Shields high. Shields high, buddy. Um, I talking about Trey Gowdy retiring from Congress here, and I think there might be more going on to meet the eye that maybe he might be our next attorney general, possibly, kind of. I've thought that would be a great move all along. I mean, I've I've been kind of advocating for that a little bit as just – you know, Buck's fantasy draft or something, right? Like, I, yeah, if I could just pick, I feel like Trey Gowdy would be a great AG. Because here's the thing about Gowdy. I think that he understands. There's a balancing act. I think he understands the political street fight realities of being and dealing with certain administration situations. But I also think that he's a guy who would never actually cross that line and be unethical. Now, mm-hmm. you know, that can be complicated, right? Especially when you're talking about people going after the president to end the presidency you know, those lines I feel like could get blurred, but I think that Trey Gowdy would probably have as good a sense of separating those out and understanding what lines can and cannot be crossed as anybody. Right, right. So you think, oh, AG, no. you don't think he's just going down to be a, I mean, I guess he could be a U.S. attorney. I'm, I haven't really, do we Do we know what he's, what, what's the media, Mike, no, saying? I, he's, do we know I what he's uh, lined up to be, Roger? No, I haven't heard anything. You know, he just said he wants to get back into, uh, I don't know, I can't remember what he actually said, getting back into the justice system. And that's just about all he really said. And uh, I don't know, when I don't say much, he almost makes it sound like maybe there's just something going on that's... Um, yeah, there's something going on. I don't think that he's just on. tired of politics. 
You don't right. get as far, I mean, and you don't do as much public work as this guy has. And you're just like, yeah, you know, he's he's probably kind of young too, isn't he? He looks like he's, he's in his maybe he's a, mid late forties. He's not like he's yeah, he's a sharp guy. Yeah, he's not. Uh, anyway, we'll see. Thanks, Roger. Yeah. Okay, thank Ray Gardy says thank you, Roger. Says thank you. He's gonna be the next attorney general. I just it's, uh, come on, that kind of sounds like him. I mean, I like him, but. Angie's List has collected millions of verified reviews of local home service providers, and now they're free for everyone to read. Angie's List makes it easy for you to find top quality service providers in. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Team Buck is cleared and ready for the Buck Brief. But no regime has oppressed its own citizens more totally or brutally than the cruel dictatorship in North Korea. North Korea's reckless pursuit of nuclear missiles could very soon threaten our homeland. We are waging a campaign of maximum pressure to prevent that from ever happening. Past experience has taught us that complacency and concessions only invite aggression and provocation. I will not repeat the mistakes of past administrations that got us into this very dangerous position. Just returning to the State of the Union. Uh, welcome back, everybody. The Buck Sexton Show, Hour 3, in effect, because I wanted to give a little bit of national security analysis. Uh, I felt like this could wait until later on in the show, and so here we are. But here's what I would say about uh, all things North Korea, or a few things. First of all, uh, remember that missile drill? I mentioned this yesterday on the show. I've got more information on it. Uh, this coming courtesy of CNN, the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency employee who triggered the false ballistic missile alert earlier this month has been fired. The state adjutant general said Tuesday, the unnamed employee said he didn't know it was an exercise, even though five other employees in the room heard exercise, 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 end quote, an investigating officer told reporters. Retired Brigadier General Bruce Oliveira said when it became apparent that the real world alert was issued, the employee who pushed the button seemed confused. He froze and another employee had to take over his responsibilities. Gosh. The employee had a history of confusing drill and real world events. Okay, so it turns out this guy was just incompetent. I mean, just not able to do the job. I was hearing all kinds of conspiracy theories about this originally. People were saying, oh, it was, a, it was a protest or something. No, I think it's just what government work is process is the product. I tell you the process is the punishment, which is true, but also with government work, process is the product. People show up to show up. They get paid because they're there, generally speaking. I know people are about to yell at me, Buck, what about FBI agents? What about, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I'm not saying everything or everyone, but... At the Hawaii Emergency Management Management Agency, I'm telling you, they're, they're not exactly saving lives over their day-to-day. 
Okay, that's fair to say. And I, if you've ever spent time, you know, this is the old trope that we all use, but, you know, spend some time in the DMV. Although, actually, I, you know what? And I'm about to talk about North Korea. I know this is a, a digression, but my last, few, my last few DMV experiences were reasonably civil and efficient. You know, people used to beat up. I, mean, I have I remember the nightmare days of going to the DMV and like you needed seven different forms of identification. You're like, how do I have seven different forms of it? I don't even know what that means. How does that even? You know, that doesn't make any sense. Right. They're like, oh, you don't have a utility bill sent to your current and previous address signed by a notary. You're like, wait, what? I need all that for trying to get anyway. Um, but the DMV actually wasn't that bad. The point here is that government. It's going to have people who mess up, and there should be accountability, and this guy clearly messed up. So there's not much there other than, one, I don't see a conspiracy here, and I did not to begin with, but two, the reason we care about a Hawaii drill situation like this is because Hawaii maybe is, we don't really know, within striking distance of North Korean missiles and North Korean nukes. I would would note that we all think that this is a timeline issue and that we know what the timeline is. A couple of, for, for the sake of, of clarity, or a couple of points I just want to make about our ability, the U.S. government's ability, intelligence community, the ability to forecast things like that. Uh, I don't have to remind you all about the whole WMD situation, right? We remember that that was... And I, I, you don't have to send me the emails, but they did actually have WMDs in violation of, I, I know, but they didn't have, we, we never found what they thought we were going to find. Um, but even before that, and this is a really a better example of it, was that we were surprised at how advanced, the U.S. government was surprised at how advanced some of Saddam's weapons of mass destruction programs were after the first Persian Gulf War. And that's when we had the whole regime of of uh, sanctions and the weapons inspectors and all that. We're like, whoa, this is further along than we thought. And yeah, it was. So you can't put too much stock in, oh, don't worry. We know when this is going to be a threat to us. You know, I've seen people go on TV that, you know, within a year, within a year, within a year. We've been hearing that for a long time. The answer is we don't really, we, you can't really know with complete certainty. Uh, so start with that. That's important. And, and then you start to get into what can we really do about it. Right? Those are the other, that's the other part of the whole North Korea discussion. And Trump is right in that the previous administrations have just been backburnering North Korea as much as possible because it's a, a, a terrible problem and an intractable uh, situation for a whole bunch of reasons that we discuss with some frequency here on the show. Um, but the sanctions that we have in place are imperfect, and they always will be. North Korea does not function the way that we would like it to, in, well, in a lot of ways, obviously. But you have sanctions in place generally so that you put pressure on the regime because the overall economy is... Uh, well, is under pressure and is people are losing money and they get angry. And that's usually a good way, even in a place, even in a country where, because, you know, even in countries that don't have elections, for example, if you have the industrial class, the rich folks within that country, which every, every, uh, 
despotism has at least some layer of hangers on and and close aides and stuff that have a lot of power and and a lot because you can't actually just be a you know no man even a despot even an authoritarian is an island right you, you need a a group around you an inner circle that will help you rule with an iron fist in north korea it's it's the military but the problem with a situation like north korea is that the inner circle is small and very changeable i, I actually just saw earlier in the week there were some stories about accelerating executions of anyone who is considered disloyal to Kim Jong-un or a problem for Kim Jong-un. But the whole putting pressure on the regime by impoverishing the country or or cutting off certain industries that the country relies on for foreign currency, it just doesn't, doesn't, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's like we're trying to... uh, it's like we're trying to cut off economic activity in a country that already has so little economic activity that it's not even going to notice. And there's no civil society of any kind in place that you could use as a lever or that you could use to exert leverage upon the Kim, uh, Kim dynasty. So that's just a way of saying, and I've been telling you this all along, and I'm going to continue to say it, I think we likely get to a point where... Uh, I think we might get to a point where we just say, look, I mean, North Korea is going to have what it has, and we've just got to work on defeating any missiles that it could fire. Now, it gets a little bit more, not just complicated, but a little more frightening when you add into it that, okay, well, North Korea, it's not like they get a missile that they can put a nuke on, and then if we can shoot that down, theoretically, we're okay. They could get missiles that they could fire at different heights and speeds and a whole lot of them at once, and, you know— Missile defense becomes complicated really quickly when you start to think through it. It's not just, oh, they're, they fight. it's not like it is in the movies, right? There's one missile. We have to stop the one missile. Um, and what are they going to fire at? What's the distance? How much warning would we really have? Again, Hawaii, right? Hawaii. The, the reason the Hawaii thing made, if there was a nuke threat to New York City, quite honest, well, that would have caused pandemonium and chaos probably, but... I think a lot of people would have said, I got a text message saying that, you know, there's a there's an inbound nuke coming in or something like this has to be. I think people wouldn't have believed it. I think in Hawaii, because of its proximity to North Korea and because it's been talked about as a possible target of the uh, evil Kim dynasty. And it is evil. And that was among the most powerful symbols that we had last night. Although There were several uh, was that or most powerful moments included the North Korean defector who stood up and held his crutches in the air. Just a reminder that people have been through a lot and still fight and still yearn for and fight for the freedom of others. So that was a very inspiring moment. But he was right next to Otto Warmbier. uh, Sorry, the parents of Otto Warmbier, who was just, we don't even know what happened other than he was brutalized and came back effectively dead and is dead now because of what the North Koreans did to him. I mean, a, a young guy who was no threat to them, and yet they just are, you know, they are a, as a regime, as a nation state, North Korea is a moral disgrace. Uh, so how do we handle it? I, I don't think it's going to be solved anytime soon, which is an obvious thing to say, but I do believe we have to keep that in mind. And Trump is doing everything that can be done. And then I start to get a little worried. I start to think to myself, Well, if President Trump is taking this quite seriously, and I believe he is, 
And if he is doing everything in his power to handle the North Korea problem, and I believe he is, what if I'm wrong and we're not actually going to wait? What if the decision that is more likely based on the folks who get to make these kinds of calls in the Pentagon is, no, we, we got to stop this. Uh, that is a future that I I don't even know how we could war game it out here, but uh, any kind of war with North Korea would be terrifying. Um, there's As far as I can see, as far as I know. Now, look, I wasn't, my, my background is really in counterinsurgency and counterterrorism stuff. I didn't really do the, the big mill, big military operations, and that's not anything that's I have a, a, a deep background in, right? The moment people start talking about aircraft carriers, you know, a lot of what I know I learned from the History Channel. Uh, but I do know that things go bad a lot faster than most people would assume and realize based on what you could see from spreadsheets and what you're hearing from the analyst class that's out there right now on TV and writing for newspapers and everything. So um, North Korea is is a is a big problem for the administration. Um, North Korea is going to be an issue. So that's something that I wanted to uh, wanted to get to eight four four eight four four nine hundred two eight two five eight four four nine hundred buck. Um, if you want to call in on the lines, I know I'm not the, uh, I'm not the, what's the word, most optimistic about some of our national security challenges, but I just try to give it to you straight. Uh, so. He wants people to come to the country, but not from those certain asshole countries. He wants them rich and white because he that's, wants them that's from Norway. Untrue. And that's, that's not America. Uh, Chris, that's we, I wouldn't be here that if that's America. That is the opposite of what this president has laid out. By very definition, a merit-based system is colorblind. It is absolutely outrageous to claim that it is anything different. Please Parents answer. have been begging for some of these things in the past, and now they claim that they're racist. That is just untrue. He, You're trying to create a narrative that doesn't exist. You're trying to take words of the president and make them mean something that they don't. I, I like that Sarah Huckabee Sanders will just go right in there into the lion's den with, with Chris Cuomo and throw down. And she's totally correct on this point. And it, it also is a reminder of how Democrats will often slip up on. And I'm, I'm referring to Democrats, Chris Cuomo. If you don't think he's a Democrat, I, I don't know. I've got uh, I've got a lot of things to teach. Um, but he's he's pushing her on this issue and saying that that Trump wants rich white immigrants. And as she says, a merit based immigration system would be what does the person bring to the table? And no one anywhere ever says, oh, skin color or ethnicity is somehow a definable or quantifiable thing that goes into a merit-based immigration system. No one says that. No one believes that. That's not reality. But the Democrats kind of betray their true feelings here, which is, well, you know, if you make it merit-based, there's going to be certain countries and certain people that just aren't going to be able to won't be able to hack it. You know, won't be able to get in, get in through the immigration system. And you got to stop and think to yourself, hold on a minute. Uh, 
why do they come to that conclusion? There are impressive and uh, brilliant people from every country in the world. So we're just trying to switch the current system into a system like what Canada has, like what Australia has, where we get the benefit of being the country that a whole lot of folks want to come to. That's not really all that complicated, right? It's not really, well, I mean, it's a complicated process, but the concept is not complicated. It's pretty straightforward, really. But racism, racism, racism. After Russia, it's it's the favorite thing for Democrats to talk about. And they have lived, so many of them, I mean, this is really a, a, sometimes talk about defining characteristics of progressivism and liberalism. So many of the Democrats I come across who have achieved different levels of success in their professions, but particularly for those who have been successful in media, what I find is is the following. They have managed to go through life without ever having to really think too deeply about many of their most closely and tightly held beliefs because they've just gone from one place to another surrounded by people who agree with them. And the echo chamber effect has been so, so consistent that there's no sense of introspection. There's no there's no intellectual humility with these Democrats. And I don't just mean because a lot of them are dumb. I mean that even the ones that have fast firing synapses that are actually intellectually capable and quick, it is like trying to get into a closed circuit because they've just. They've been told that what they what they believe is right for so long. And one of them is this whole notion of of uh, structural and systemic racism and how that's that's just become a it's really an article of faith for progressivism. It has a religious zeal to it. That's why when you start to poke holes in it and you know you start to bring up things like, well, you know, affirmative action. Uh, what's why was the, well, the Asian-American community is actually financially better off and uh, gets into a higher percentage of the top tier schools in the country than the Caucasian community. So what do we make of that? And by the way, they're now getting reverse discrimination in the affirmative action process as a result. What do we make of that? You know, systemic racism. They just, they don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. Uh, So there is that. Uh, Oh, I've got some calls that I wanted to get to, although I've realized we've got to go into a break here in just a second. Uh, I did. I, talk, I think I talked about the Heilman Russia agent thing, right? I kind of hit it, which is that the Democ- the short version. Here's the short version: the Democrats are crazy. So there you go. That's the that's the bottom line up front, the the header, so to speak, on how could a an a paid MSNBC analyst be like? Does David Nunez? Do the Russians have something on him? And is he a Russian agent? It's like, is that really where we're going now? Well, then again, they go there with Trump, right? So I guess it's not that much of a leap for them to think that there's just a whole bunch of pro-Russia or turned by Russia traitors in the government. Crazy world they're living in. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We'll talk to you folks in a second. And we've got a whole lot more show. Stay right there with me. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. 
just have to, guys. At CNN right now, they're, they're running with breaking news during exclusive, CNN exclusive. Oh, President Trump asked Rosenstein if he was, quote, on my team. Hmm. Quote, on my team. Terrifying. For those of you who are wondering whether we should care about this at all, let me just remind you that while he was the sitting attorney general, Eric Holder referred to himself as, quote, President Obama's wingman, end quote. So that that was cool, right? That was okay. So his, like, best buddy could be the attorney general, and but that's not a loyalty pledge. Yeah, you know, the attorney general is my best friend, but he's not saying he's loyal to me. You know, this is why I can't take these people seriously. You'll notice that Anderson Cooper staring at the screen and I was like, very serious. You know, Anderson, why don't you have Buck on? He can explain the facts of life to you a little bit here. But no, they will not. Instead, they'll have they'll find some lawyer who worked in some administration somewhere. Be like, I know it's terrible. Ethics tell us that you cannot ask if he's on my team. I mean, this is a this is beyond politics, Anderson. This is about America. Everyone's, everyone's sitting at home watching CNN. Oh, my gosh, you're so right. It's really, it's not even partisan. It's just about America. <laughs> oh, man. What a world we live in. Oh, uh, quick note here, team. I want to make sure I give you all the proper information. And so that's why I've got to tell you about my friends over at Black Rifle Coffee again, because the coupon code is BUCK15. BUCK15 at BlackRifleCoffee.com slash BUCK. That's how you get the best coffee you can get anywhere in the business. It's how you support this show. It's how you support veterans, small businesses, entrepreneurs. Uh, also, they've got these amazing ad campaigns you're going to love. But I really need to make sure you guys go to the site and go use the right coupon code. It used to be 10% off. Now we got 15% off to folks listen to the Buck Sexton show. So that's Buck 15, not Buck 10, Buck 15 for 15% off. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck, uh, slash buck. Coupon code BUCK15 will get you 15% off. Black Rifle Coffee. I drink it all the time. It is delicious. And these guys are awesome. And they love the Freedom Hut. So what else do you need? Let's get to Robert in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Robert. Hey, Buck. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for calling in. Hey, listen, I want to thank you for being, uh, as far as I know, the best analyst in the media. Thank you. And I love your teaching very much. Thank you very Thank much, you sir. So I appreciate much. that. Hey, uh, I have a question and a comment. Um, you know, right now it's pretty clear that the North Koreans have the ability to launch a ballistic missile and hit Tokyo with a nuclear weapon. As a guess, they could kill 20 million people there just in an instant. And my concern is that negotiation has never really worked with the North Koreans. Sanctions have never really worked. And I'm thinking it's coming to a preemptive strike. Well, I'm worried about that, too. That's what I was alluding to before. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I may not have caught the whole thing, but uh, my question to you is, what is the U.S. capability with regard to neutron bombs? My understanding is, they have minimal radiation and radioactive fallout so that the damage to other places would be minimal and yet take out life. So my thinking is a handful or a dozen neutron bombs could take out most of their military, most of their capability of launching, you know, 
ordnance on Seoul. And a couple other nuclear weapons, three or four, could take out their production facilities, their launch facilities, and their ballistic missile launch facilities, or at least bury them under so much rubble that we take them months or years to get to them. All right, Robert, a few things here. What do you think about, what, what, what's the situation with neutron bombs? Sure, a few things. First, uh, I, and I always will admit when I do and don't know things, within the uh, de- you know defense analyst community and national security analyst community, Missile guys and gals, but the missile folks are a whole specialty unto themselves, right? It's almost like I'm a I'm a Mideast counterterrorism guy by trade, uh, so I can I can analyze what the FARC may have been up to in Colombia pretty well because there's a lot of crossover there. But once we're talking about missiles and and uh, really powerful ordnance like neutron bombs and stuff, I'm just a I'm a student the way a lot of other folks listening to this are students. Although I know there's a lot of current military who probably are like, actually, Buck, I could call and tell you all about neutron bombs. But then the other part of this, as a as a taking a national security perspective on it or national security analyst perspective, the issue then becomes Robert not capability but will, meaning that we need to remember that the North Korean people are prisoners. North Korea is like a giant prison camp, and there are men, women, and children there. I think about twenty. 20 to 25 million people in North Korea, maybe 5 million off. Um, but it's a lot of people. And you would, I mean, think about the moral, the moral calculation that you'd have to make there to launch that first strike. And it's terrifying. And I know, and that's why I'm saying, but I don't know what the answer here is, other than we just try to live with this maniacal regime. Yeah. But I just can't I, foresee know, I, a future I, I, in which I, the United States government says, we're going to vaporize 10 million people and, and, and yeah, we'll leave the structures intact. I just can't, but I could be wrong. I, I, I can't foresee that, though. Well, what I understand about neutron bombs is that it wouldn't... No, I know. It wouldn't destroy the structures. It, it like, basically kills living things and not... On, you focus on their military. But, you know, Truman made that calculation at the end of World War II. And, you know, his calculation, he asked the experts, how many people will be killed if we have to invade Japan? both Japanese and Americans, and the numbers were astronomical. Right, but remember, Japan he, threw, he Japan threw the first punch. That's a very important distinction. Japan threw the first punch, right? We would be throwing the first punch at North Korea. Um, well, I'm just, I look, it's, there's I no easy, Robert. I'm not Korean saying you're war. wrong or I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying it's, it's a hard one, for sure. A very, yeah. very, very tough one. But I appreciate you calling in, Robert, and thank you also for your kind words. Good to talk to you down in uh, North Carolina. Uh, we were we'll get into some team buck speaks. Some or, gosh, I got that wrong, Buck. Sorry, guys. I don't know. I need to get some sleep tonight. Um, Miss Molly just got back from being away on for work, so I'm all excited to get home after the show and and actually get to hang out with her. I haven't seen her in like a week, which feels like a long time. So uh, that's if I if I feel or <laughs> if I sound a little scattered, it's because I got Miss Molly on the mind, uh, and I'm going to be going home here in a little bit to get to that. So uh, she made salads tonight. That's right. She's healthy. She's keeping me healthy. She says, honey, I've got salad for you. Yay. So there's that. And hopefully a bottle of something. I don't know. Maybe a bottle of tequila. We'll see what happens. Uh, But we will get into some Team Buck Speaks. I did it again. We will get into some roll call. That's what I need. We'll get into some roll call here in just a few minutes. And uh, those of you that uh, saw my appearance earlier on, uh, Brett Bear panel, thank you very much for the kind words. Appreciated that. Tomorrow or Friday, not sure which. Probably Friday, I think. I'll be on Outnumbered at 12 p.m. Eastern on Fox News. So plan for Friday unless you hear otherwise. 
But check in tomorrow noon also. It might happen. And uh, we'll be right back. Well, team, I didn't get to I didn't get to roll call yesterday, so I want to get right into it today. Wah! Team Buck, it's time for roll call. I think that it's really growing on me, by the way. At first I thought it's a little wah wah, but now I've decided, you know what? I dig it. I like I like our little roll call time together for this stuff. So there's that. Uh let's get into it right away. Um Randy wrote in to say that, uh, oh, this was during the show. Hey, Randy. See, I, I do these in order, so that's why I think some of you think that I'm cherry-picking just, I love your history podcast. More people should listen. That's just what's in the inbox, you know? And and I'll read the, the criticisms, too, as long as there's no profanity or anything bad in them. Uh, did you say that Clash of the Titans was garbage? This is from Randy. I haven't seen the new one, but the old one was the, the schnizzle. Was seeking some clarification. Randy... Yeah, man, I'm. I'm gonna. I can't. I cannot tell a lie. I thought those Clash of Titan movies were were like beyond trash, and I really wanted to like them too. But I'm I'm harsh on this stuff because I have somewhat. I think I have realistic expectations of what is possible for movies like superhero movies and things of, of that nature. So when they don't reach my expectations, I tend to trash them pretty, pretty hard. Uh, Tyler uh, has one here. When, do you, when you have a young child in a big city, uh-oh, hey, Tyler, <laughs> jumping right into it. He's asking me a question about living in a big city. How do you take the child places? If you take a cab, do you have to carry a car seat around with you? Well, I don't have a kid yet, Tyler. Uh, hopefully soon, but not too soon, but soon. Um, I can just tell you what I've seen. I have a lot of friends now who have kids, and I've reached that point in life where, you know, the friends that you have with kids, you don't see them nearly as much as the friends you have that that do not have kids. So uh, that's my way of saying I don't have any expertise to share on this, really. But, um, no, I think you just carry the kid. I've never seen anybody put a car seat in a, in a taxi, for example, for a baby. I think what you do is you uh, – a lot of people wear the, like a Bjorn or – it's like a harness. It's like a harness that you have in front, and the baby goes in the harness. Men and women wear them, so I think that's what the the urban dwellers like me do when they have a kid. But yeah, I got to learn about this stuff. I do not know much. Um, Amanda, next up on roll call, Adam Schiff and used ShamWow. That made me laugh so hard. Well, thank you, Amanda. We had some fun with that one too. I think it, I think it accurately describes the feeling one gets from having to watch that guy on TV being shift, if you will. Uh, let's see what we get next here. Melissa, greetings. I heard Wasserman as chained migration, which makes perverse sense in the context. Cheers. Um, hmm. I don't know what that means, but, yeah, we talked yesterday. Who was it if someone said chained migration uh, was complaining about it? I forget which Democrat it was now because – so much information goes into the brain on a day-to-day basis. I can't keep up. Who was it? Oh, oh, okay. Well, we'll get back into that in uh, in just a second there. So, team, let me um, get back into some more of Roll Call. So we got more Team Buck speaks right now with uh, – sorry, I, I picked these 
as we go. And Sandy is next. Uh, great Shields High podcast again. Uh, so sad they can't just kill, they must torture. Uh, I think Sandy's referring to what happened with the fall of Constantinople and just the widespread usage of torture in, well, honestly, in warfare. You're talking about the 15th century. Everybody was torturing everybody. We have become, and this is an interesting aside, I think, we have become so much more uh, ethical humanity has overall. I know there's terrible savages and you know psycho killers and everything still, obviously. But glo- there's actually some interesting studies that have been done. I forget it was somebody at Harvard. Harvard. Somebody at Harvard uh, did this whole thing about how our our general tolerance for violence as a species, like humanity is less tolerant of violence now than it used to be. And that's one of the reasons why I think we go back and see some of the, for example, the entertainments and sports of the past, like the Colosseum and you know Christians being torn apart by lions. We see that and we say, oh, that's, that's terrible. And this was what happened in ancient Rome before Constantine became emperor and Christianity became the official Roman religion and all different. Those of you who listen to the podcast know about that. But the other part of uh, our history, humanity's history, that I don't think gets very much attention when you're talking about that stuff is that the uh, really awful public punishments and executions of the past were, were a spectator sport in a lot of cultures, in a lot of societies. They were spectator sports. It wasn't, oh, gosh, we can't, you know, if we see this, then we'll all behave. It was, I want to go watch someone be hanged. I want to go watch someone be disemboweled. I mean, that's... That was kind of the way it was for much of human existence. And now we have, uh, dare I say, we have evolved as a species. Humanity has gotten less violent. So, uh, I mean, the, for the notion of thousands, and those of you listen to the podcast know, and I know I went into some detail, but I think we should all know, thousands of impalements that would happen at certain incidents around the periods of uh, the, the battles I've told you about on Shields High. Thousands of impalements? I mean, if you start thinking about that, you're not going to sleep very well. Uh, let's go next. Charles, uh, Buck, hope all is well and love the show. Wanted to uh, let you know that I received my Trump raise today. Great stuff since I did not vote for him. Another thought is the FBI had a hard time recovering from the Hoover days. How long will it take this time? Thanks and have a blessed week. Charlie OSS, Charlie, original Saturday squad. Well, thank you very much, Charlie, for your kind words. And the FBI had a hard time recovering from the Hoover days, huh? Look, this has happened in the past. You go back, what was it, the Church Committee investigations and the CIA, and there, there's all kinds of stuff. I think that's where you got the term. That's where people started referring to the agency as a rogue elephant, right? My history is correct. Uh, there's going to be uh, accountability is going to is going to sting. It's going to hurt sometimes. Accountability can be messy. It's not an obvious thing, and. It's not an easy thing either, so we've got to keep that in mind. Um, So we've got uh, Mark. Here you go. Hey, it's Mark here. Just a fun note to say I enjoy your historical perspective so much. Wanted you to take a look at this unique and extraordinary bunch of women from World War II, the Night Witches, 588th Night Bomber Squadron, all female, all Russian, and all heroes, 
Take a gander on the internet. You will be fascinated by the courage and tactics. Mark, I will be honest with you. I have never heard of them before. And so I do find that uh, interesting. And I will certainly check it out. So thank you very much for that. Um, here we go with... Sorry, sometimes my I do this off my phone, so I reload it. That's why it takes a second. So I'm, I'm lining them up. But it also gives you a chance to you know, catch your breath, you know, have a... Are you guys all drinking all the flavored the flavored sparkling water now, or is that just a bougie thing that we in New York are doing? Right across the country, right? LaCroix, I'm drinking that stuff by the case, by the, by the gallon, because I really try to avoid drinking sugar. Um, I, have a, I have a chocolate and, and milk addiction, so I, that's really my weakness. I mean, I'm, I've even, I will tell you this. I was even made fun of by some colleagues in government because they became aware that even when I was out there in, you know, the stuff way, way off the grid. And uh, I would try to, I'd try to sneak a little bit of, of chocolate along with me. And I would drink, I would end up drinking uh, long, like long sh- shelf life milk. Cause I was, yeah, I know it, it comes in like a carton and it's good. For, it's, I was like, oh, it's delicious. They're like, Buck, what is wrong with you? But I just needed my chocolate and I needed my milk. And, so there's that. I'm also telling you the story because as I was talking about reloading, uh, my phone straight up froze. So that's how I get into a weird anecdote about chocolate and milk. And that's okay, though. It's okay because we're pretty much at the show close. So uh, this is where I, I ask you all to please do uh, share the podcast, tell people about the show, spread the word, uh, and do check out our fantastic and wonderful sponsors, as I've been telling you, that's very, very important. It's a way you can show your vote, your support for the show. Uh, and Shield Time Monday, I'm planning to get out the first of a series on Malta. But for those of you who have heard me talk about Malta before, I promise you there'll be a lot of new stuff, a lot of additional and cool run-up to Malta. So I think you're going to like that. And I'm going to keep going with Shield Time as long as I, as long as I can. I don't know how long it's going to be, but it's going to be for a bit. That's the plan. Malta, you know, is near and dear to my heart as a story. So we'll get into that and much more. Hopefully we'll have a memo to talk about tomorrow. Until then, my friends, shields high.